I don't want to overly intellectualize my childhood, but I do think it pretty profoundly shaped who I am. I would say there's value to not being in the center of the crowd. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Indranel Guha would prefer you call him Indy. I haven't been single in many years, but I try to introduce myself in a bar and have somebody say, like, what? Your name is Internet? <laughs> I was like, which is the most San Francisco bar response ever, right? But anyway, uh, Indy was an easier handle. Now, it is pretty cool considering you got Indiana Jones. I mean, Indy is a pretty cool name. Pretty much all the associations I'm good with, right? Like, you know, if you're hearing it, it could be, you know, famous fictional archaeologists. Could be race cars, freeform association, right? Oh, and or like, pick your favorite lesser-known musician. That's true. Those are all good options. I'm I was cool way into that band before anyone else was into it. Totally. Yes. Now, you, like the Indiana Jones, you you have been around the world. I mean, you have lived in England and uh, Saudi Arabia and India and the United States. Uh, yeah, I, I also lived in Texas for a part of my childhood, which is certainly a different country. So, it, 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 as is San Francisco. All, also true. So I. Uh, I'll get to the United States in a minute, but tell me about the other places, particularly Saudi Arabia. What What do I need to know about living in Saudi Arabia? Well, uh, there are probably better guests to ask this question to. I was in Saudi Arabia from the time I was two to the time I was six. So I can give you the toddler version of what you need to know. Uh, I'd say the two call outs would be if you're not accustomed to your mother wearing a hijab, which everybody, all women have to wear when they're outside the home, uh, as a two-year-old, a shadowy figure in black uh, walking around with your family is quite shocking. Like, it's who not is this person and why? Because I think every kid has done that, right? Where they've followed the wrong pair of jeans, you know, in the mall and then looked up and said, you're not my dad. <laughs> yeah, that would happen, wouldn't it? I, I guess so. I, uh, I I don't think that one happened to me, but I could see how that comes about. Um, 
I think, you know, in hindsight, there was this constant sense of being a second-class citizen. Um, it's little things like, uh, so we used to go to learn swimming at this um, public pool, and they had a separate pool for Saudi nationals mm. and for foreign nationals, like, which is sort of a bizarre concept in and of itself. And then the Saudi national pool, you know, the things that stick when you're, let's call this now, five years old, the Saudi national pool had, like, water slides and all sorts of cool stuff. The foreign national pool was a very nice pool, Olympic size, whatever, but, like, no frills, right? Dive board, lanes, lane markers, you're good to go. So uh, I, think, I think that's probably what, what sticks in me or sticks with me after the fact. The other interesting thing with Saudi is... Uh, at least in Riyadh, the big city, everybody lives in their own enclave, right? It doesn't matter what the definition of the enclave is. The most typical version would be whatever your, whatever country you came from, because Saudi Arabia, at least in the 80s, I think this is still true, imports all of their skilled labor. Um, and so you show up and then you basically live in an apartment complex that's all Americans working in Saudi. Um, and it's just like a series of gated communities, which is like a really odd concept when you think about it in the U.S. context. So. You have family still in India. Yes. Uh, all my extended family is in, in Calcutta in the east city that's unfortunately best known for Mother Teresa and, and other uh, unfortunate manifestations of poverty. Where, when were you in India? How old? Uh, I went there, I moved back there when I was eight, uh, and I finished middle school and high school there before coming back to Philly for college. What do I need to know about living in India? Uh, there are many Indias. Uh, this is even more true now than it was in the 90s when India first started kind of opening up its economy. I always tell friends, you know, if you're going to travel in India, there's a version of that country you can experience for $2,000 a day, and there's a version of the country you can experience for a dollar a day, and pretty much every price point in between. Um, and so in many ways, somewhat like the U.S., it's very hard to mm -hmm. paint it with one brushstroke, right? My parents uh, are classic immigrants in that they moved across oceans to sort of chase opportunity. Um, I think, unfortunately, that was married by with some pretty terrible financial savvy and... Unfortunately, in my dad's case, probably an overdeveloped ego. So a side effect of those two things was essentially we uh, moved to really kind of, in startup terms, lower our burn rate. Mm. Um, you know, he took a couple of left turns professionally that put some financial hardship on the, on the family. Moving back to India, where we had extended family to kind of help out, was a way to manage through that. Um, so yeah, I think it's safe to say life in the Bay Area as an exec in a tech company, all of this was not exactly, or the fancy schools I was privileged enough to attend were, were not things I could have predicted as a, as a middle schooler or a high schooler. That must be a bit jarring to now be, you know, a comfortable investor uh, and an executive in a high tech firm growing up at a, in, a, in a family in which there was a lot of uncertainty? Um, I think I've uh, been able to make my peace with the, the jarring part of it. I think I did have to work through that a bit in the earlier stages of my career. 
hey, is all of this real? Can all of this be taken away? That kind of thing. When you've experienced loss as a kid, it sort of uh, stays with you in a lot of subtle ways. Um, at this point, I think I've been able to move past that, and it comes back to some of the things we talked about earlier, right? Um, if you've seen the negative side effects of an overdeveloped ego, it's a really easy way to keep your own ego in check. Uh, and it goes back to that learning mindset of uh, I will always be a sponge for information. Um, and I think that's that served me well in a lot of different ways. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Bain Capital Ventures recognized Indy's outsider-looking-in skill, tapping him to build its West Coast operation. Remember, Bain is an East Coast company, until recent years shut out of the true action in California. Bain takes a bet on you, making you the youngest partner in the company's history and then has you launch their uh, Palo Alto office. That's right. So um, back in 2011, as I was uh, finishing up business school, uh, it it feels like an eon ago relative to venture capital industry history, right? We're we're in the soft bank and vision fund era now. Um, There was no real track record of East Coast venture firms successfully penetrating the West Coast. But it was clear to everybody that the West Coast was the dominant hub for venture-backed activity in the U.S., about 50% of the dollars. Uh, At the time, for Bain, I think 6% of our portfolio was in California. Um, And so they kind of picked a a group of folks that were excited to take on that challenge, and I had to figure out how to be relevant to this ecosystem, right? Uh, No shortage of excellent, like, you know, iconic venture firms here in the Bay Area. Um, And so kind of that 2011 to 2015 period was a lot of hard yards, building credibility, building a network, showing people how you could support their business, showing founders how you could support their businesses. Um, And over that period, the West Coast grew to be 40%. It's now closer to 50% of Bain's activity. 
Um, and so I, I became a partner there back in 2015, having kind of helped build that engine. Um, and that was, that was really cool. Um, at any time you're building something new, I think there's a lot of satisfaction to that. As you're introducing Bain to the West Coast, you're back in that situation of being sort of the outside kid looking in again. Yeah, uh, I, th I think that's fair. Um, <laughs> it didn't help that uh, 2012 was when Mitt Romney was running for president and was a not positively viewed by most of the Bay Area. Uh, but I guess there's no such thing as bad press, right? Um, I, I think the way we were able to get through that is, you know, what can you offer to whatever social construct you're in? And the thing that Bain is uniquely good at, and I was able to kind of build programs and process around that, is access to the Fortune 5000, right? Access east of the 101. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Bain is not just a venture capital firm. They have a private equity firm that owns a lot of household name companies. And so there's a really interesting way to bring that to the service of founders in the Bay Area to say, hey, as you scale your business, you're going to need access to the Fortune 5000 for customers, for partnerships, whatever. Let's make that programmatic. Um, and, and that gave us an excuse to reach out to uh, anybody here in Silicon Valley. What was your biggest success at Bain? Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to, uh, I guess, pick a favorite child, but maybe we'll, we'll focus on a company that I think uh, is having a big impact in its industry. Uh, I led the Series A in a company called Rike, W-R-I-K-E, headquartered here in downtown San Jose. Uh, they're in the kind of task management and work management space. Um, and back when we invested, it was a 40-person company kind of three-ish million in revenue, they're about to cross a 1,000 people um, and are kind of in that pre-IPO scale. The reason I like celebrating that one is they've done all of this on a total of maybe 50 million in capital that they've actually used or, or worked through to grow the business. Which I think is a is a wonderful story to remind the Valley of in the era of everything that's happening with WeWork and Uber and this period of excess, however you want to call that. Um, this was a company that always valued steak over sizzle. They always built a long-term business. They always looked inward for what their customers wanted, uh, what the market demanded, as opposed to what buzzword or investor is going to care about and how do I artificially juice my numbers. They always built for the long haul. Um, and so I think for that, they, they merit a special mention. And there's Signified, an anti-fraud company in Bain's portfolio. I think the big opportunity in kind of the macro lens with that initially took me to Signified as an investor, I, I invested in the company and led the Series C round, um, before getting really excited about it and joining full-time about a year and a half later. Uh, but Signified is emblematic of where I think a lot of software will go, which is, first and foremost, um, leverage the data exhaust that already exists 
to automate and drive efficiency in any process you can think of. In Signified's case, that's looking at consumer behavior to separate the honest buyers from the fraudulent. Knowing the good guys and gals intelligently ahead of the fact means you don't have to do kludgy things like ask for two-factor authentication when somebody's trying to buy socks. Um, that's Particularly if this is a customer you've seen before who always pays for his socks. Yeah, exactly. Like, this person is good for the sock money. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Um, but it's, it's crazy. You know, because we sit on the checkout flows of so many merchants, we are this really interesting index of human aspiration, right? All of the things people want to buy on the Internet, uh, which is everything from socks to literally gold bars. Mm -hmm. And so we have to figure out how to help that full range of merchants, basket size $25 through to basket size $30,000. Luxury watches would be another example of some of the more pricey things we have to make decisions on. Now, to remind you, Indy has lived in India and Saudi Arabia and England. I, I don't want to uh, overly intellectualize my childhood, but I, I do think it pretty profoundly shapes who I am. Uh, I, I would say there's value to not being in the center of the crowd because um, it gives you a little bit of perspective and a streak of independent thinking that's kind of impactful in all settings. Um, and, you know, when you move around a lot as a kid, you're constantly figuring out different social dynamics, different cultural norms. You never quite fit in. Some people describe this as being a sort of a third culture kid. Um, and that's okay, right? Because not at the risk of sounding a little bit negative, it means you always have something to prove, which is sort of a good outlook on the world. It... Um, it means you always have a learning mindset or a growth mindset, which can be exhausting at times, but most of the time is very rewarding. And it, you know, it, it makes you try new things and be very open to that and kind of uh, be able to look for uh, the underpinnings of any social group or, or any situation, which generally comes in handy. Indy is an outsider, but really... He's also an insider, American High Finance, Harvard Business School, Venture Capital, which leads to the question, what part of outsider mentality is worth keeping? And what part do you shed? What part do you keep? And what part do you let go? It's an excellent question that I didn't think to ask. That voice you hear is my producer, Sean Myers. And you land at UPenn, you go to Harvard Business School, <laughs> you go to Bain, you couldn't end up much more inside than those three in a row. But my question is really, what part of that outsider mentality is worth keeping? And what part of it do you shed as you go through the process? And having been here for now, it's sounded like seven years, maybe some amount of years, mm -hmm. you start to be an insider more and more. Again, what, what part do you keep with you and what part have you been willing to let go? That's a powerful question. I got to think about that for a minute. That's that's totally fair. Um, I think for me, it's been never taking conventional wisdom to be binding and and, and to be correct. Um, that's another example of one of those personality traits that can be pretty damn exhausting. 
because when somebody, when you get the expert opinion on X, you just don't accept it at face value. You feel this compulsive need to validate it and fact check it a little bit and at least form a quick and dirty version of your own view. Um, that is something I don't ever want to lose because that's how you avoid kind of the in-group mentality of, oh, this is how it should be done because this is how it has always been done. Um, and when you really start to think about it, as an investor, it was helpful to keeping me grounded when this cycle of excess really started to pick up steam. Hey, do the business fundamentals of X or Y actually make sense? Um, can you really scale a negative gross margin business? Um, some of those types of questions just, it allows you to, to listen to that spider sense when it goes off. Um, as an operator, and I'm still fully figuring out how to express this, um, a lot of times when you step into a company, there's some level of tribal knowledge around, we tried X and it didn't work, and we tried Y and it didn't work, and therefore this other thing is never going to work. And that combination of learning mindset and questioning default wisdom allows you to say, it's great that it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Like, let's actually unpack. It wasn't, like, anytime you run an experiment, you're not just testing one thing, you've, you're actually locking in six things that are bundled into the same experiment. So which of those six caused the failure? And if we wanted to test it again, what would you, what would you change? And I think that allows you to pull in a lot of other folks into a conversation and just really bring a lot more ideas to the table. Um, I, I, I realize that all sounds very kumbaya. I don't know how to how to tell that story better, but uh, it is a pretty fundamental belief for me and kind of how I move through the world. Indy Guha of Signified and Bain Venture Capital. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at PressHereTV.com. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers, executive produced by Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni.